Well, we are in a series called The Last Word on the Gospel of John, and we're in part eight, believe it or not. We've been at this for a little while, and it is accurate to say that John has the last word because he writes last in the New Testament. His gospel, three epistles, the book of Revelation, the final documents by any of the apostles, and he puts pen to paper more than 60 years after the day of Pentecost, and more than 30 years after his colleagues in ministry are gone. He's truly the sole surviving elder of the first century church. So he really does get the last word on Jesus, and it's a powerful word. John spends, as you know by now, the first half of his gospel uh, summarizing three years of Jesus' earthly ministry. And that section, as we've studied, it contains seven miraculous signs, and they all point to Jesus as the Word made flesh, God robed in flesh. And that section ends with the raising of Lazarus from the dead, the last of those seven signs. You would think a miracle like that would be enough to convince everybody that Jesus is the Messiah, but that's not at all what happened. In fact, John let us know in the very first chapter that Jesus would come unto his own, and his own would receive him not. I'm thankful there's a verse just after that one, though, that says, but to those who did receive him, to them gave he the power to become the sons of God. That's us. I'm grateful for that. But as you read the Gospel of John, the tension has been building and building in John's narrative. The crowds are thronging to Jesus, and they're enthused by his miracles, and they're excited about his teaching. But the religious leaders, they're becoming more and more angry at Jesus' popularity. And this miracle is the last straw. They don't rejoice that a man has been raised from the dead. They're not amazed. This is the last straw for them. It dramatically tips the scale and it puts Jesus on a collision course with the Sanhedrin and a collision course with Calvary. The Bible literally says it's almost unbelievable. Then from that day forth, they took counsel together for to put Jesus to death. And so that brings us to the last half of the Gospel of John. And John spends this last half, chapters 12 to 21, summarizing just one week, the last week of Jesus' earthly ministry. And it's a significant week. This week will begin in triumph and end in tragedy. It will start with a joyous Passover celebration. And it will end with a lonely funeral procession. It will open with a crowd crying, Hosanna, and close with a mob screaming, crucify him. John tells us about it. He says, on the next day, much people that were come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, they took branches of palm trees and they went forth to meet him and cried, Hosanna, blessed is the king of Israel that comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus' triumphant entry into Jerusalem is recorded in all four of the Gospels. This is the week of Passover, and the Jews are gathering from all over Israel, and what they're celebrating, you know your Bible, they're celebrating Passover, the deliverance of Israel from bondage in Egypt under the leadership of Moses. 
And every year, and this year's no different, they are hoping and praying that this will be the year and this will be the Passover, that another Messiah will come and he'll be a courageous leader like Moses and he will deliver them from bondage, this time bondage from the hated Roman Empire. And so when the crowd sees Jesus entering the city, they begin to wave those branches from the palm trees in celebration. And they begin to cry out, Hosanna, or in Hebrew, Hoshiana. It means salvation is come. Salvation is come. And there's no doubt in their mind on this day that their long-awaited Messiah has come. He's the king of Israel they seek. Moses had delivered them from Egypt on Passover, and so surely this Jesus must be their new deliverer, appearing during Passover week to overthrow Rome. The enthusiasm and the expectation is incredible, but sadly, their worship will be all too temporary. While the disciples of Jesus get caught up in all the excitement for a, a little while, for a few moments, privately they're troubled because Jesus has begun to make more and more strange, puzzling statements about his impending death. You probably remember this. We covered it in a previous lesson before in this gospel, uh, chapter 2, chapter 7, chapter 8. Jesus would say, my hour is not yet come. My hour is not yet come, but now he's declaring openly the hour is come. And so it's a frightening, confusing, dangerous time to be one of his disciples. Jesus says, the hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. And glorified sounds like a good word until he continues. Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone, but if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. And so Jesus himself has to now make a consequential choice. Is he going to pray, save me from this hour, or is he simply going to pray, glorify thy name? Whatever choice he makes is going to affect the future. This choice will lead him to Calvary. This choice will determine our destiny. Here it is, he says to his own disciples, now is my soul troubled. What shall I say? Which way should I pray? Do I pray this way? Father, save me from this hour. And then he says, but it's for this cause that I came unto this hour. Or will I pray, Father, glorify thy name. Which prayer will I pray? And you know which prayer he prayed. Father, glorify thy name. And at that moment, just like at his baptism, there came a voice from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Jesus going to the cross, Jesus being crucified on Calvary, that's going to be for the glory of God. We can't even comprehend how that would work, that a brutal execution would somehow be for the glory of God, but it will. It will be for the salvation of millions and millions of people throughout the ages. So it's for the glory of God. 
And sometimes we are faced with a similar choice in our prayers. Will we pray only, Father, save me from this hour. Jesus, save me from this trial. Jesus, get me out of this. Or will we pray a bigger prayer? Will we pray a more consequential prayer, a more eternal prayer? God, I don't understand what you're doing, but whatever you're doing, glorify your name. If I have to stay in this trial for a while longer, then I would prefer glorify your name. If this sickness is not going to be healed right away, God, whatever you're doing in my life, glorify your name. Jesus continues on and he says a very familiar scripture to us in verse 32. He says, and I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. We love to sing that verse. We love to preach that verse. And we preach about worship. If we lift up Jesus, it'll draw all men to him. Well, that's a very true statement, but it's a partial truth. Because the next verse says, This he said, signifying what death he should die. Yes, we should lift him up in worship, but that wasn't his immediate context. He said, if I'm lifted up on the cross in agony, that act is going to draw all men unto me. That's the ultimate glory of God's name. And so the turn of the crowd away from Jesus, the the turn of the mob, first it's a crowd shouting Hosanna, and then it's a mob screaming crucify. The turn of that crowd is tragic, but it's absolutely necessary if prophecy is going to be fulfilled. Here's what John records, and it's so tragic and sad. He said, though Jesus had done so many miracles before them, yet they believed not on him. And here's why. That the saying of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spake. And here's what Isaiah spoke. Lord, who hath believed our report? And to whom hath the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe because that Isaiah said again, they should have believed. It would have been right for them to believe, but Isaiah said again, God has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts that they should not see with their eyes nor understand with their heart and be converted and I should heal them. There was a blindness over the Jewish religious leaders. And and then because of their influence, there was a blindness over the people. And they didn't see what God was doing. They didn't see that God had come. The word made flesh. God manifests in a body. Jesus coming to earth to give his life for our sins sins. He wasn't going to be a conquering king. He was going to be a suffering savior. But can I tell you, a suffering savior has a whole lot more impact through the generations than a conquering king. And, and, but they can't see it. They're blind. But here's one thing I'd like you to notice. These things said Isaiah. This is amazing. I'd never seen this before. These things said Isaiah when he saw his glory and spake of him. Now what are we talking about? If you go back up to the top, verse 37, though he, or we say he, he had done so many miracles before them. Who's that? That's Jesus. So Isaiah is talking about him. These things said Isaiah, last part of the verse, when he saw his glory and spake of him. Now, Isaiah did not live in Jesus' lifetime. In fact, Isaiah lived and ministered and prophesied 600 years before Jesus would go to Calvary. 
So when did Isaiah see Jesus' glory and ever speak of him? It was in the very same vision where God spoke those exact words. If you read Isaiah chapter 6, that's the chapter where Isaiah speaks and talks about God blinded their eyes and he hardened their heart. That's the chapter, Isaiah 6. And what exactly did Isaiah see when he saw his glory and he spoke of him? I'll tell you what he saw. He saw Jesus on the throne of heaven. Because chapter 6 that records those words about hardening their hearts and they can't see and their eyes are blind. That very same chapter begins like this. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne. He was high and lifted up and his train filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphims. Each one had six wings. With twain he covered his face and twain he covered his feet and with twain he did fly. And the seraphim cried one unto another and they cried in a circle of praise around the throne. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Who were those seraphim shouting glory Glory to. Let me tell you, that was Jesus. Isaiah saw him. Isaiah saw his glory and Isaiah spoke of him. The same Jesus who had done so many miracles before the people. It's amazing to me because we think of those Old Testament prophets and it's true. They didn't see what we see. They don't have the benefit of the New Testament. They were never filled with the baptism of the Holy Ghost like you are, but they saw something so powerful. Isaiah saw what God was going to do. Isaiah saw the face, the appearance of God and the angels singing. I don't think the face of God looks different than the face of Jesus because Paul later talked about the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's why Jesus could say before Abraham was I am. That's why Jesus could say that because Abraham Abraham saw God's glory on the top of Mount Moriah. Jesus said, Abraham saw my day and he was glad about it. Now, if an Old Testament prophet could get that kind of revelation, what in the world should we have a hold of with the whole New Testament? What in the world should we have a hold of with the baptism of the Holy Ghost? Jesus is not just a religious leader. He's not just someone who was like God or patterned after God. He is God in a body of flesh. He's the same God that appeared to Abraham. He's the same God that was in the lion's den and the fiery furnace. He's the same God that created the world. He's the same God who sits on an everlasting throne with seraphim circling around that throne, never taking a breath, never stopping for a beat, just saying for the endless ages, holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty. That praise goes to Jesus. So if that praise goes to Jesus and the angels have never never been redeemed. Our praise should go to Jesus because we have been redeemed. Angels aren't filled with the Holy Ghost, but you are filled with the Holy Ghost. We have a great privilege to know this Jesus. Oh my. Now to follow Jesus back then required the same choice as it takes 
to follow Jesus now. And the choice you have to make if you're going to follow Jesus in this or any generation is a choice between the praise of men and the praise of God. You have to choose. That's exactly what John records. Nevertheless, despite all of this, despite all the miracles and the healings and even raising a man from the dead, nevertheless, among the chief rulers, also many believed on him. So even in the Sanhedrin, even among the Pharisees and the Sadducees, there are some that believe in Jesus. They just can't deny it. But watch. But because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue. They were more tied to their religious traditions than they were to truth and revelation. There are many, millions of people like that today. So tied to their religious traditions that they can't step out on a limb and follow after truth and revelation. And here's why Jesus or John says this. For they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. Now, I like having friends, and I like people to think well of me. But every time it comes down to a choice, 100% of the time, I'm going for the praise of God well over the praise of men. It's nice to be friendly and give somebody a compliment, but I don't need your compliment if it's going to take me away from my God. I don't need your likes and your following and all that stuff we do on social media if it's going to take me away from my God. I love the praise of God more than I love the praise of men. It's quite telling that right after John says that about the choice between the praise of God and the praise of men, it's, it's quite telling that right after that, he follows it up with Jesus' own definitive declaration about the oneness of God. Because the oneness of God is often the dividing line. It was when John wrote these words in about A.D. 92 or 93. Jesus cried and said, this is right after John said there are some people that won't follow him because they love the praise of men more than the praise of God. Jesus cried and said, he that believeth on me believeth not on me, but on him that sent me. And he that sees me, you're actually seeing him that sent me. If you're looking at me, you're looking at God. If you're following me, you're following God. If you're praying to me, you're praying to God. If you're worshiping me, you're worshiping God. John positions that statement of Jesus declaring his oneness with God, his absolute oneness with God. He puts that right after his statement that some people wouldn't follow Jesus because they love the praise of men more than the praise of God i got to tell all you apostolic people that I love, that's still happening today. There are some people that they, they can't be baptized in Jesus' name because it would fly in the face of the tradition of their family. There are some people that they couldn't say, well, I, I declare that Jesus is God in the flesh. He's the only God. There's no trinity of gods. It's just Jesus. They can't do that because they're bound by a tradition of their family or their religion. But we follow after the truth of the word of God. We are more concerned with having the praise of God than the praise of men. It's amazing to me. Now John, who records more of Jesus' conversations than any other gospel writer, more conversations in John 
than anybody else. He now spends the next five chapters, 13 to 17, detailing just one conversation between Jesus and his disciples at an event that we call the Last Supper. It's a conversation that's filled with deep emotion and rich symbolism and powerful prophecy. And no moment in that conversation, no moment at the Last Supper is more meaningful than when the God who calls this earth his footstool gets down on his knees and stoops to wash his disciples' feet. And John says it in such a profound way. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he was come from God and went to God, he riseth from supper and he laid aside his garments and he took a towel and he girded himself. And after he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and he wiped them with the towel wherewith he was girded. Think about that. Jesus, knowing that he had all authority, stooped to serve those under his authority. Jesus, knowing exactly who he was and what he was, chose to humble himself. Jesus, knowing exactly where he was going and what he was doing, chose to empty himself. It's hard to even fathom an all-powerful creator serving his all-too-sinful creation. It's hard to even fathom. Blessed deity kneeling before broken humanity. It's hard to comprehend. A holy God washing filthy feet. I was studying earlier today and that song, I love it all the time, but I love it especially at Christmas time. It says in one of the verses, what condescension bringing us redemption that in the dead of night, not one faint hope in sight, God gracious, tender, lay aside his splendor, stooping to woo, to win, to save my soul. And the chorus says, Oh, how I love him, how I adore him. My breath, my sunshine, my all in all. The great creator became my savior and all God's fullness dwelleth in him. It's hard to even comprehend such condescension. It would have been a great condescension if Jesus had come to the most magnificent palace on the earth at that time and if people had fanned him and fed him and served him and pampered him. That would have been a big condescension when you live in heaven. But he didn't come to a palace. He came to humility. He came to poverty. He came to this world that was so sinful and polluted and he lived and died as a pauper. And he did it for you. Oh my goodness. That's one of those old oneness songs. I'm sorry, I'm kind of overcome with this whole word thing tonight. 
Oh, how I love him. How I adore him. My breath, my sunshine. My all in all. The great creator became my Savior and all God's fullness dwelleth in Him. Some of you singers that sing that beautiful harmony, would you help me? Oh, how I love Him. How I adore Him. My breath, my sunshine, my all in all, the great Creator became my Savior and all God's fullness dwelleth in. It'd be about perfect if you'd lift your hands and do it one more time. Oh, how I love him. How I adore him. My breath, my sunshine. My all in all, the great creator became my savior and all God's fullness dwelleth. In him. Oh, let your praise out for a minute. My goodness. Oh, thank you, Jesus. I know it's Bible study, but let your praise out. Yes, yes. Oh, thank you, God. Whew. My goodness. Thank you, Jesus. You've got God manifest in flesh on his knees with a towel in front of his disciples. It's unreal to fathom. And John tells us the event, but Paul gives us the theology. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but he made himself of no reputation and he took upon him the form of a servant and he was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. That is a great condescension. And all of that, brothers and sisters, begs the question, 
What do you do when you are the most powerful person in the room? When he was the most powerful person in the room, Jesus stooped to serve. He even tells his disciples, you call me master and Lord. And you say, well, you're, you're, you're saying it correctly. For so I am. He uses that eternal name of God. He said, I'm the I am. So you said it right when you call me master and Lord. But here's the punchline. If I then, your Lord and master, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. If I've humbled myself before you, you should humble yourself before each other. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Verily, verily, I say unto you, don't you get a big head about your anointing or your gifting or your ministry. I say unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord, neither is he that is sent greater than he that sent him. A lot of people say, you know, I just want to serve God. I want God to use me. And then when God treats them like a servant and uses them, they say, I feel used. It's kind of weird. Servants are often taken for granted. Servants are usually overlooked and they're sometimes even mistreated. Servants are typically given menial tasks and they normally don't receive any recognition. Servants serve in the shadows while others stand on the stage. Servants toil in obscurity while others bask in popularity. And worst of all, servants are almost always, 100% of the time, treated like servants. And yet Jesus made himself a servant, and he taught all of us to be servants as well because, brothers and sisters, servant is the only job description that matters in the kingdom of God. It's the only one that matters. John, you can feel it accelerating almost as he talks to us and writes to us. Jesus says, now I tell you, before it comes, I'm telling you these things right now so that when it has come to pass, you may believe, and he does it again. The word he is in italics. He said, so that when it comes to pass, you will believe that I am. There's going to be some things unfold over the next few hours and days, and I'm telling you all this now so that after the fact, when you look back in the rearview mirror, you'll know that I am that I am. Only God could know what is about to happen. And that's why Jesus says, I'm telling you now so that you will believe then that I am. On the other side of the cross, on the other side of the tomb, on the other side of the resurrection, you will finally understand what God has been doing all along. But see, right now the disciples can't possibly comprehend what's gonna happen in the next few hours and days. The tension in the room palpable. And of course, it's impetuous Peter who keeps breaking the silence. Jesus goes to wash their feet. Peter says, Lord, are you washing my feet? Jesus said, yes, I'm washing your feet. Oh, Lord, no, you can't wash my feet. I won't let you wash my feet. Jesus looks back at Peter and says, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part of me. Okay, Lord, wash my head and my hands and my whole body also. Peter just can't stop talking. Anybody got a friend like that? Never mind. Don't point. 
Peter, he, he gets uncomfortable with awkward silence, just like preachers do on Bible study night sometimes. Jesus keeps making strange statements about his betrayal. And then Judas Iscariot abruptly gets up and departs from the supper and heads out into the night. And the disciples' heads are starting to spin with all the questions the more Jesus talks. And of course, it will be Peter who speaks up first. And Jesus says, little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and as I said unto the Jews, whither I go, you cannot come. So now I say to you, a new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. And by this shall all men know that you are my disciples. Don't want to hit at you, but it won't be by your holiness it won't be by your preaching. It won't be by your worship music. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples if you have love one to another. Are all those other things important? You want to believe it. But if we don't have love with it, it doesn't matter in the kingdom of God. Now, Peter, he can't take an awkward silence and he also can't take when he can't figure it all out. So Peter jumps into the fray here. Simon Peter said unto him, Lord, where are you going? You're talking about in a little while, I'm not going to be here. Where are you going? And Jesus answered him and said, Whither I go, thou canst not follow me now, but thou shalt follow me afterwards. Peter, he can't do this. Peter says, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I'll lay down my life for your sake, Jesus. And Jesus looked back at Peter with compassion in his eyes, and he said, Will you lay down your life for my sake? Verily, verily, I say unto you, Peter, that the cock shall not crow, the rooster will not make his noise and his cry and his call in the morning until you've denied me three times. See, Jesus knows something they don't know yet. Jesus knows that without the power of the Holy Ghost, it will be impossible for any of his disciples to do what he has called them to do. They have to come to the very end of themselves. They have to realize that they cannot depend on their own power, but only on his power within them. So what Jesus said to them is absolutely true. Right now, you cannot follow me fully, but afterward, you will be able to. Isn't it amazing that Peter, who will deny the Lord in cowardice before just one little servant girl, just a few hours from this moment, he will preach about Jesus with boldness before streets filled with thousands just a few weeks from this moment. That, my friends, is exactly what the Holy Ghost will do in your life. It changes you from Peter the coward, Peter the denier, to Peter the Pentecost preacher. So Jesus, he just told them, he said, you can't follow me right now. You can't do this kingdom work right now. You can't be the witnesses I've called you to be right now. But you will be able to do it afterward. After what? After power from on high. After the earnest of your inheritance. After the comforter comes. After the day of Pentecost. 
I got to tell you, we still can't do it without the Holy Ghost. We still can't be what he's called us to be without the Holy Ghost. We still can't see miracles, signs, and wonders without the Holy Ghost. We still can't impact the hearts of people in a fallen culture without the power of the Holy Ghost. That's what the comforter does. Now, Jesus knows they're afraid right now, and so he comforts them. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. What's that mean? Well, if you believe in me, you're believing in God. In Israel, back in the first century, generally a young woman would be married in her early teens, often as young as 13 or 14. It would become known that she was now of age, And her father would entertain offers from all the fathers of young men in the village or the town who might be interested in marrying her. And if the two fathers, of the man and the woman, if the two fathers agreed on the terms of the marriage, there would be a celebration, an engagement celebration to honor the couple and to announce their engagement. And at that celebration, that young groom-to-be, he would offer the girl in a ceremony a cup of wine to drink. Now, she doesn't have to drink the cup. Technically, she can reject it. She can say no to his offer of marriage. Even though everything has already been arranged, she can still technically say no because it's up to her. Can you imagine the pressure on that young man. Everybody in his family and circle of friends, everybody in his neighborhood, they're all gathered in the town square and they're watching to see if she will accept the cup that he has presented to her. If she says yes, which is yes, I'll marry you, he gives her the cup, she drinks of the cup, and he gives some sort of prepared speech about their future together. Because if she takes that cup, And if she drinks from that cup, that doesn't mean they're married. It only means they're engaged at this point. They aren't married yet. Something still has to happen. Or to be precise, something has to be built. If she says yes, they're not married that day. It's just the engagement. That young groom goes home and he begins building an addition onto his family's home. And this is where he and his bride will start their new life together. And so in the Jewish customs, he works and he works and he works and he builds a place that they can call home. But he doesn't know when he's going to finish it because he doesn't have the final say on when it's ready. That's his father's decision. And so his father periodically comes and inspects the work of his son and looks to see if the quality that the son is building properly honors the family and his future bride. You see, that father has considerations as well. Because if he has many sons, they've all built rooms in his family home. It was called an insula in that day. It's a large, multi-family dwelling, kind of an estate. And the parents live there and the grandparents and children over here and children and grandchildren. And so that father, he already has many rooms in his house, many rooms in his insula. And if that father had built that addition onto his father's house, then by now, several generations They live in this place. It's a large dwelling with a lot of rooms for a lot of people. 
And while the young groom is off building a place for his bride, that future bride is at her family home. She's learning how to run a household. And she also doesn't know when his work will be done. So she spends her days preparing herself for a date that's coming, but she just doesn't know when it will arrive. And then finally, suddenly, the day of the marriage arrives. The father inspects that place and he says, son, you've done a good job, it's, it's time. And so then the son goes and gets all of his friends and they set out across the town, the village, the countryside to go to the bride's family home to get her. But how will he know what room is hers? Because she probably lives in a large family estate. He knows because according to custom, she has filled her lamp with oil every night and she set it in the window so that when he comes, he'll know exactly where to go to get her. It's all the tradition. And so the groom, he gets his friends and they travel to the bride's family home and they gather her and her family and her friends and then there's this giant procession back to his house where the party to end all parties begins. That's the wedding day. And that's exactly why many months before, when at their engagement, not their marriage, just their engagement, many months before that marriage, many months before that place was completed, many months before, that's why when she took the glass of wine and said, I will marry you. That's why the groom, every groom and every generation of that time in Israel, he made a speech. The speech hardly ever varied. The speech was always the same. The speech was something that a father had said to his bride and a son and then a grandson. Everybody knew the speech in Jewish culture of the day. That young man would look at his prospective bride as they were engaged in front of the whole community and he would say, in my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself that where I am, there you may be also. Does his speech sound at all familiar to you? That is exactly what Jesus said to his disciples right after he said, don't let your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. Jesus wants to assure his followers, you're gonna be okay. Your future is secure. Don't let your heart be troubled. And when he wants to tell them that, he uses the wedding metaphor. They would have known exactly what he was talking about because they would have heard that groom's speech growing up. They probably gave it to their bride-to-be. They probably heard their sons or their cousins or their nephews give that speech. And they all would have taken part in numerous wedding celebrations. So it was something that was so common. And now Jesus looks at his disciples and he gives them the same speech. To describe heaven, he uses an event they had all experienced and he said, you know what heaven's like? Heaven is like a bride in, a, in love with her groom and he's gonna come suddenly on a day that she's not even aware and he's gonna receive her unto himself and he's gonna take her to a place that 
that he's made for her. It's like that. That's amazing. Now, Peter's not the only one that speaks up. Thomas jumps in. Jesus said, whither I go, you know, and the way, you know. And Thomas said, Lord, no, we don't have a clue where you're going. And how can we know the way? And that's when Jesus says these words. Jesus said unto Thomas, Thomas, I am the way, the truth and the life. No man cometh to the Father but by me. You don't have to figure it all out. If you serve me, if you follow me, you're gonna get there because I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. If you wanna get to heaven, if you wanna get to the Father, you've gotta go through me. Philip, or Thomas no sooner gets done than Philip jumps in and Philip says unto him, Lord, well then show us the Father and it sufficeth us. And Jesus looks back at Philip and he says, really, Philip, have I been so long time with you and you still don't know me, Philip? He that has seen me has seen the Father. How can you tell me, how can you say to me, show us the Father? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you've walked with me, you've walked with the Father. If you've prayed to me, you've prayed to the Father. Can I tell you this oneness doctrine, this mighty God in Christ teaching, this powerful revelation of the scripture, it's not incidental or accidental. It is very consequential because when we get to heaven, we're not gonna see somebody different than the one we've been serving here on earth. We're gonna see Jesus on rapture day. And what a wonderful, glorious day that's going to be. I'm going to see the one who died for me. I'm going to see the one who was buried for me. I'm going to see the one who rose again for me. But here's the point Jesus is making, but we're not there yet. He keeps saying to his disciples, it's going to be wonderful, but it's going to happen in a little while. He never specifies. Have you noticed that about God? He never specifies. It's going to happen in a little while. And until then, Jesus said, I'm going to give you a gift. I'm going to give you something called the comforter. Because I was the father in creation. And I am the son who is right now headed to Calvary. But in you, in the church, I'm going to be the comforter that empowers the church. He says to them, I will not leave you comfortless. I will come to you. You want to know who the Holy Ghost is? You want to know who that spirit is that's inside of you? That is the spirit of Jesus that is inside of you. He says, yet a little while. There it is again. It's going to happen in a little while. Yet a little while and the world seeth me no more. But you see me because I live, you shall live also. And at that day in the future, you will know for sure that I am in my Father and you're in me and I'm in you. Jesus addresses their fears one more time as he says, I will not leave you comfortless. I will not leave you like orphans. Let not your heart be troubled. You see, Jesus said, my peace I leave with you. My peace I give unto you. It's not like the world gives. It's a different kind of peace that I give unto you. And he says it again. Don't let your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. This world can only have peace when there's an absence of trouble. But my God can give you peace right in the middle of a storm because he is with us through the power of the Holy Ghost. 
Jesus keeps hammering this home. He said, I'm telling you all of this before it comes to pass so that when it comes to pass, you will believe. I'm telling you now all that's going on. You don't get it right now. You don't understand it right now, but I'm telling you now so you'll believe then. Now, Jesus has already told his disciples amazing things in this chapter. He's told them that they will do greater works than him. And he's told them about the comforter, so that comforter must be powerful. But just how in the world does this life in the Spirit work? How does the Holy Ghost operate in us? How is the Holy Ghost going to turn Peter and the others from cowards into preachers? Well, it's like the branch of a vine. It can only have life and it can only produce fruit when it's connected to the source. And our source, brothers and sisters, is the Holy Ghost, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And so he does it again. He reaches back to that ancient name of God. I am the vine and you are the branches. Anybody that abides in me and me in him, that person will bring forth much fruit for without me, you can do nothing. We need to remember that in the 21st century because we can do a lot of things or so we think. We can preach, we can teach, we can prepare sermons and lessons, we can arrange technology and media, we can play and sing songs, we We can orchestrate and organize a service. But if you want to have praise reports like Pastor shared tonight of the miracle working hand of God, it's going to take more than human effort because without me, you can't do any of that stuff. But the good news is with me, you can do all things. Basically, Jesus says to his disciples, you're going to need the Holy Ghost. Because in this world, it's going to get a lot worse for a little while. But disciples, you stick together and you love each other because eventually it's going to get a whole lot better for all eternity. Here's what Jesus said. These things I command you, that you love one another. If the world hates you, then you know that the world hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love his own. But because you are not of the world, believers, but I have chosen you out of the world, apostolics, that's why the world system hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. Jesus said, the servant is not greater than his Lord. If they persecuted me, guess what? They'll also persecute you. If they've kept my word, they'll keep your word also. But all these things they will do unto you for my name's sake. Why? Because they don't know God who sent me. Little do those disciples know it. At that moment, they don't realize it. But it's about to get a lot worse for every one of them before they leave this earth. And sometimes each one of them will wonder if the promise Jesus gave to them is true. In AD 44, King Herod ordered that James the Greater be thrust through with a sword. He was the first of the apostles to be martyred. And that's when the bloodbath began. Luke was hung by the neck from an olive tree in Greece. Doubting Thomas was pierced with a pine spear, tortured with red-hot plates, and burned alive in India. In A.D. 54, the proconsul of Hierapolis had Philip tortured and crucified because his wife converted to Christianity while she was listening to Philip preach. 
Philip continued to preach from that cross. Matthew was stabbed in the back in Ethiopia. Bartholomew was flogged to death in Armenia. James the Just was thrown off the southeast pinnacle of the temple in Jerusalem. And after he survived that 100-foot fall, he was then clubbed to death by an angry mob. Simon the Zealot was crucified by the governor of Syria in AD 74. Judas Thaddeus was beaten to death with sticks in Mesopotamia. Matthias, who replaced Judas Iscariot, was stoned to death and then beheaded. Peter was crucified upside down at his own request because he didn't feel worthy to die in the same manner as his Lord. John the Beloved was the only disciple to die of natural causes, but that's only because he survived his own execution. When a cauldron of boiling oil couldn't kill John, Emperor Diocletian exiled him to the island of Patmos, and he lived until his death in A.D. 95. Jesus is telling them what they can't even hope to understand right now. Disciples... Believers, it's going to get a lot worse for a little while, but eventually it's going to get a whole lot better for all of eternity. And that's why while you live for God on this sin-cursed planet, you are going to need the Holy Ghost. Jesus looks at them and he says, because I've said these things unto you, sorrow has filled your heart. But I'm telling you the truth. It is expedient for you. It is necessary for you. It is beneficial for you that I go away. If I don't go away, the comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I promise I will send him unto you. And when the comforter has come, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. He'll reprove the world of sin because they don't believe in me. He'll reprove the world of righteousness because I go to my Father and you see me no more. He'll reprove the world of judgment because the prince of this world is judged. You see, the Holy Ghost in the apostolic church, it's the greatest blessing in our lives. But the Holy Ghost in the church, it convicts the world. It convicts them of sin. There's something wrong. It convicts them of righteousness. There's something better. It convicts them of judgment. There's something coming. No wonder they get uncomfortable with the truth of the word of God. But the Holy Ghost on the flip side of that coin, it is our strength. It is our comfort. It is our healer. It is our blesser. It is our rock. It is our fortress. Don't expect the world to love you, Jesus said. They're going to hate you because they hated me. So believers, you hang tight. You stick together. You love each other. And he gets back into this little while stuff. This is The disciples, they were just, their heads were spinning. He says, a little while, and you shall not see me. And again, a little while, and you shall see me because I go to the Father. And then the disciples, they get off in the corner. This is at the Last Supper. Then said some of his disciples among themselves, what is he talking about? What is this that he saith unto us? A little while and you shall not see me. And again, a little while and you shall see me. And because I go to the Father, they said, therefore, this is not the brightest bunch in the world. They said, therefore, what is this that he's talking about? A little while. We can't tell what he says. Don't talk about Jesus behind his back because he can hear what you're thinking. Now, Jesus knew that they were desirous to ask him. 
and said unto them, Are you inquiring of yourselves of that I said a little while and you shall not see me? And again, a little while and you shall see me. Verily, verily, I say unto you, here's how it works, guys. You will weep and lament and the world will rejoice. You'll be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned into joy. A woman, when she's in travail, she has sorrow because her hour is come. But as soon as she's delivered of the child, she doesn't even remember the anguish because of the joy that a man is born into this world. And here, disciples, here, CCC, you now therefore have sorrow. But Jesus said, I will see you again and your heart shall rejoice and your joy no man will take from you. Jesus said, my friends, let me tell you something. For a little while you won't see me and things in this earth will not look right. You'll see terrible things in this world. You'll see cancer and killing and hunger and hatred. You'll see war and injustice, hatred and racism. You'll see addiction and abuse and betrayal and bondage. You'll see violation and you'll see persecution. There'll be unbelievable pain and unimaginable evil, but you hold on and don't you dare give up and don't you dare give in. And all of you Pentecostals, you stick together and all you apostolics, you love each other because in a little while, it's gonna change for all eternity. I know it'll seem like a long time to you, but in the scale of eternity, it's just gonna be a little while. It will look like the world is winning. They'll be laughing while you're crying. They'll be rejoicing while you are lamenting. But disciples, that's not the end of the story. Yes, your pain is real now, but your joy then will erase the memory of all of it. In a little while, I'm coming back and you will see me again and I will set it all right and the world will be reborn and it's birth pain will be forgotten and joy is going to win in the end. Peter said it this way, beloved, don't you be ignorant of this one thing that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years and a thousand years are as one day. So if God delays it a little bit, you just understand that on his clock, it's just for a little while. And the church will be eternally victorious on that day. Somebody say that day. Not today, maybe not tomorrow, but on that day, Jesus says this. It's so funny. He said, on that day, you will ask me nothing. What a wonderful, glorious day that's gonna be. Joy will win in the end, Jesus said. And on that day, you will ask me no more Questions. What would it mean to have no more questions? Why does Jesus promise that on that day you'll ask me nothing? I think it's because the disciples were always pestering Jesus with questions. Have you ever read the Gospels and noticed that? Look through them all the time. Hey, Jesus, can I sit at your right hand? Hey, Jesus, how many times do I have to forgive that guy? Hey, Jesus, how come we couldn't cast out that demon? Hey, Jesus, what does that parable mean? Hey, Jesus, can we call down fire from heaven and smite the Samaritans? Hey, Jesus, which one of us is the greater? Oh, and hey, Jesus, what do you mean by in a little while? Every day of Jesus' life with those men, it's hey, Jesus, this, and hey, Jesus, that, and God, can you answer this for me? 
And you might criticize them, but how about you? Have you ever had questions about life and it seemed like there were no answers? Have you ever just wondered why? Have you ever prayed prayers that didn't seem to work or walked through trials that never seemed to end? Have you ever had tears and sorrows and fears and doubts about tomorrow? Have you seen more valleys than mountaintops lately? Have you ever felt overwhelmed by the battle or overcome by the struggle or even overpowered by the enemy? Have you ever just felt so weary from the journey that you thought you couldn't take another step? And have you ever, like me, ever said to yourself or somebody else, when I get to heaven, I'm going to ask Jesus about that. Anybody ever said that? When I get to heaven, I'm going to ask Jesus why he took that person and why he left that person. Oh boy, I'm a pastor. I've got questions like that. When I get to heaven, I'm going to ask Jesus about this trial and this sickness and why they died and why, why they got healed and why they didn't get healed. But that's not what Jesus said. He said, on that day, you will ask me no more questions. How in the world will that happen? I'll tell you, it won't happen in this world. It's going to happen in heaven. Maybe it'll be the site of all the mansions or the gates of pearl or the streets of gold or the walls of jasper. But I have a sneaking suspicion it probably won't be that. It'll be one glimpse of our Savior's face. And when you see Jesus, it will forever push every question and every doubt and every pain and every concern from your mind my goodness last scriptures I'm done Hebrews 10 the writer says brethren friends brothers and sisters believers cast not away therefore your confidence because it has great recompense of reward for you have need of patience that's what we need that after you have done the will of God you might receive the promise watch this watch for yet a little while. Don't you hate that? Not tomorrow, not next month, not on the 16th, not on the 23rd. No, nope, no date, no time. In a little while, for yet a little while. But here's the promise. And he that shall come will come and will not Terry, I know it feels wearisome sometimes. I know that you look at the world and like the disciples in that day, you think in this day, this world is upside down and I don't know how much more I can take but there's coming a day in just a little while when he that shall come will come and he will not tarry any longer. And so Jesus ends this discussion by saying these words. These things have I spoken unto you, that in me, somebody shout, in me, that in me you might have peace. If you're trying to get peace in the world, you're not going to get it. But in me, you might have peace. In this world, you shall have tribulation, but disciples and believers and apostolic church, you be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. It's going to be all right in just a little while. 
it, your pain, your sickness is going to be gone in just a little while. The old songwriter, he wrote, somewhere between here and there, there's going to be a healing service. There's going to be a deliverance service. There's going to be a victory service. When you get there, you're not going to remember any of the trials of the road from here. So in this world, you're going to have tribulation, but you put a smile on your face. You lift up your hands and your voice and you worship me. You be of good cheer because I have overcome this world. You might not see it today. You might not see it tomorrow, but you can rest assured. You can take it to the bank that he that shall come, he will come and he will not.